Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast, The Decision Lab, a nonprofit think tank dedicated to democratizing behavioral science. We conduct behavioral research and consulting projects with clients such as the Gates Foundation, the World Bank, and governments and nonprofits around the world, helping to improve outcomes for all society. My name is Brooke Struck, Research Director here at TDL, and I'll be your host for today's discussion. My guest today is Margarita Gomez, Executive Director of the People and Government Lab, located in the Blavatnik School of Government at Oxford University. So, so since October 2019, I am leading the People in Government Lab, which is the new innovation uh, research center in the Blavatnik School of Government at the University of Oxford that is focused on how can we improve public servants' motivations, effectiveness, and responsiveness around the world? And why did we think that is important? I, and what we saw is like there is a general trend to have a lot of labs, innovation unit uh, centers focused on designing better public policies, but we have let, uh, less efforts on applying experimentation, behavioral science, and new methodologies to improve public servants' performance and decision-making process. So that was the main idea of creating the People in Government Lab. This is an idea that we have been discussing since 2018, more or less, and we found there is this uh, space that it needs to be filled with academics and with uh, practitioners and with more knowledge to try to build the bridge between practice and uh, academia. It sounds like the initiative is still very new. Uh, do you have an example that you can share with us to illustrate and put some meat on the bones of what you're talking about? Even though the, the lab was created in October 2019, we have been, and I personally have been working on how can we apply behavioral science and experimental methods inside of the government. One of the main projects that I did, it was related to increase honest behavior in public servants in Mexico specifically. We identified some some of the policies that the government was uh, was already implementing, and we used some insight from behavioral science to make that public servants report the gifts that they receive during Christmas, even though that in the law is, is stated that we shouldn't like public servants shouldn't receive these gifts. In cultures like the Mexican, they still receiving these gifts during Christmas. And we thought this is a really clear behavior, Iran is specific behavior, and we can try to test and to see what can we do to increase compliance with the law and also to improve honest behavior in public servants. So this is like the first steps that we have been doing on this. Now we are working in the Brazilian government also to increase motivation of public servants. So I'm very curious, can you share a little bit about what the uh, the nudge was for the Mexican public servants? The behavior that we wanted to change was increasing the report of gifts that uh, public servants receive during Christmas. Just a little of context, as I said, this is prohibited by the law, but it's still happening because during Christmas it's okay to receive gifts. It's culturally uh, accepted. And what we did is we explored the literature on behavioral science and we saw one thing that was important is like usually gifts in this context are used as a kind of price. This is a behavior that we want to change in government because it can influence the behavior of public servants and it can affect their impartiality. The first thing that we did, the first treatment was about just making simple, telling them that there is a law that says in a simple way that they have to receive. And we also reduce the friction cost, making a simple form where they can report online the, mm -hmm. the gift that they have received. Just the first one was making it simple and telling them in a really easy way what they have to do and timely. So we send the messages during the Christmas. The second one was we told them we use social norms. We told them that some of their colleagues, in this case, around 1,000 public servants, they have already reported the gift that they have received in the last couple of years. Then we also know, because of the literature, that making salient the consequence of a behavior can change the behavior of the individuals. And when we did this, we told them that receiving a gift could compromise their impartiality. The fourth uh, treatment that we have, it was focused on reciprocity. So we told them, and moral uh, norms and reciprocity, we told them that we already trust them and that we know that they will behave in the proper way, according to the law. 
that they will report the gift if they receive it. The final treatment was focused more on threatening them, telling them, so if you don't report this, someone else is going to report uh, the gift that you, that you receive. Also, we put some eyes in the email. All these emails were sent by online. It was already a policy that the government was doing. And in total, we sent around 1 million emails to 157,000 public servants in Mexico. One of the things that stands out to me in that example is there's this interesting kind of back forth and interplay between the behavioral intervention, sort of the, the more typical structural piece. So you mentioned that, you know, you were using social norms. This many of your colleagues are already exhibiting this behavior. And that's more sort of typically on the behavioral side of the line, if you will. But you also had one intervention that was very much focused on the structural issue, that there is such and such a penalty associated with this behavior, but you still had the, the kind of behavioral flavor added to that with putting some eyes in the email to make salient to people. They're kind of being observed that not only does this structural feature exist, but there's also this kind of social observation aspect that's going on. I think it's very interesting to see those mixed together. I think that when we thought about the last treatment, that is the one when where we use like someone else can, that is the threatening of the sanction, someone else can accuse, you can be um, sanctioned for this. We more or less thought about increasing the cost, the social cost of the, of misbehaving, you no, know, or behaving dishonest in a dishonest way. However, when we saw the results, the only two that were significant, statistically significant, were first, just making simple the message, making it timely, and also reducing the friction cost, so the treatment one. And the second that was also statistically significant was making visible and salient what could happen if they receive a gift, how their impartiality could be compromised. We did a qualitative research. We did some focus groups and some interviews to try to understand a little more about the mechanisms. And the last one that it was about, that it was the one pointing out that someone else could accuse them, it was very aggressive. And also like public servants felt that it was creating a really negative environment in the offices. The good experience or the takeaways of this experiment, additionally to the study that we did and to the findings that we have, is also how talking about honest behavior and corruption, we usually frame that in a really negative way. That is the main uh, communication uh, style. And what we found is that public servants find that really aggressive. And instead of promoting the behavior that we are willing to promote, there is a lot of negative reactions to that. We could give these insights to the government because we did all this experiment was run together with the federal government. So we gave them some insights. And also during all the experiments, they were learning how to design the experiment. They were learning how to design the messages and use behavioral science. And also something really simple, but I find that really valuable. They creating databases and they systematize information that could that also help them to take some better some some decisions. For example, we found some gifts that were really expensive. One of the protocols that the government established was okay, these gifts that are super expensive should have an investigation just to know what is happening here. I think that there were really good policies in policy implications about doing this project together with the government. In discussing the the interventions, the treatments that you rolled out. One thing stood out to me. So you mentioned that of uh, you know five or six interventions, two of them worked. From my own experience working in government and working with colleagues who are presently in government, but you know from the outside, I noticed that some people have a different perspective on that kind of issue. For some, they say, "Well, we tried six things and two of them worked." For others, they say, "Well, we tried six things and four of them failed." There's a a big aversion to risk within the culture of many, many governments. I think that this is a prevalent problem around the world. And when we're running experiments, there's always the possibility that they will fail. That's a necessary component. We must fail in a certain number of experiments in order to figure out the thing that actually works. But within the context of a very culturally or, or a culture that is very averse to risk, how do we address that challenge? How do we get 
the space to be safe for public servants to start experimenting so that they can sort of test it out without worry. I think that the first, uh, I would say that there are different elements. The first one is, in our case, we were, at the end, we were trying to understand better dishonest uh, behaviors as a proxy of corruption. We avoid to use corruption because we know that it, it might be more difficult to engage people about that. So we spoke about honest behavior. We, we reframe our study in order to really to increase engagement. The other thing that we did, this was a really, we, are, we were not studying the big issues, like the big corruption. This was something where we can have some results in a short time. I usually say that it's just the foot on the door. So it is a specific behavior. We know a lot of no political topic and where we can give some results in a short time. So I think that it was, I think that when we are starting to work with governments, it is important. First, how do we uh, frame our communication? Second, maybe first start uh, with something small and then take a little more of risk because there is a relationship, a trust relationship that we are building between researchers and policymakers. And I think that is good to start first small and then go a little more, go bigger and with more ambitious uh, questions. I think that third is to engage them in all the process, to make them part of the process, to also give them something. Because at the end, if, for example, the experiment doesn't work, they also like can get something from this. They can learn and we are also building capacities. They also know that it's something that is not really expensive. It is something that is it, it can have a low cost. And they can also like use these insights in different projects that they have. So I think the communication uh, start small and then go bigger and engage them in all the process. Yeah, that's very interesting. It relates to a point that uh, I've discussed with some other colleagues and another episode in this season of the podcast will be touching on that more expansively. The topic that it touches on is sort of what will help nudges to become quite mainstream within government as opposed to becoming something very niche. So what you mentioned here about involving the policymakers in the process is very relevant to this. If we involve them in the process, we develop that internal capacity we expose them to what all of those steps look like. In some ways, there's an appealing aspect to saying, okay, well, we work with the policymaker to define the problem. But then we, as the, you know, the experimental group, as the behavioral scientists, we will kind of retreat into our lab setting and we will conduct this on our own. And then when we're done, we'll come back and show you the results. But as you mentioned, that doesn't contribute as much to developing trust with those policymakers. It doesn't contribute to developing capacity within those contexts. So for behavioral scientists, if we were to always follow this model of help us define the problem and then we will take ownership of it and we'll come back to you when we're done, that could contribute to us kind of isolating behavioral science from the mainstream of what happens in government. As a result, we might find that there are behavioral science units that are dedicated but also insulated as opposed to saying behavioral science is one of the tools that government uses all the time for all kinds of different things. Like talking about these experiments that we run and together with the Mexican federal government, so I think that it was so important to engage the to engage them, you know, to engage the unit responsible of this, and also to show them how can they understand and how can they understand and study and design these policies using the behavioral science lens. This is sometimes you can run an experiment and that will be great, but also sometimes you can get this knowledge and design different forms that they might not be tested, but they can they can learn in the process. For us also, it was super important that they can create databases. Databases that after that, as a researchers, we can use that to go in a deeper studies, but also that they can use to make better decisions in the day-to-day, something that is useful for them, something that gives them uh, information that is relevant for the decision-making process. The creation of databases is an interesting challenge these days, of course. There's a lot of visibility around data privacy and, and concerns around that. There's a slightly different point that I wanted to pivot to. So you mentioned that starting off small is really important, involving government stakeholders and policymakers along the way to expose them to this process. But how do we get 
the very first project off the ground. In a previous conversation, one of the ideas that you mentioned that stuck with me is this need to have champions. Could you explore a little bit the role of champions in, in helping to get these initiatives started and, and their role as the initiative scale? Yeah, I think that it's, it's a fascinating topic. How can we engage government to apply behavioral science and to do applied research? On one side, we have government. On the other side, we have researchers. I'm going to talk first about how do we engage government. There is first thing is we need to knock a lot of doors. We need to talk with a lot of people uh, trying to get that buying and trying to tell them why would be a good idea to run an experiment and use behavioral science. In order to start a project, one of the things that is super important is to find champions. And when I say champion is someone that wants to take the risk to explore and to run an experiment that we can have results or we cannot have any significant results. But I think also it's a matter of framing. If we just focus in the end and in the final result, it might be a little sad. I think that it's more important to focus on the process, on all the research process, since the moment one when we are developing the idea together until then, and in the process, all of us, we can win a lot of things. So what we did in this, like in order to engage government, first was it like, finding, trying to find who can be our champions. Second, we didn't talk about this is the final result that we want. Specifically, we talk about this is a process where we both, we are going to learn and we are expecting this. And you can get some results in a short time. This experiment was really good because it was in a short time. Finding these champions is really, really important. Champions that can have the power and the position to move this forward also the resources to support all these experiments. And you mentioned also, um, you know, needing to engage the research community in this. So as you just covered, uh, there's a risk aversion in the context of governments towards, you know, things that might not succeed and might be seen to not be succeeding. So that's a, a big worry on the government side. And champions are very important to kind of provide a space for experimentation to take place, to provide a bit of air cover, if you will, for things to proceed even without the assurance that there's going to be a demonstrable result at the end. But what about on the research side? How do you see researchers feeling about engaging with government? And I think especially one of the points of worry that I've heard from researchers is that they worry that engaging with government will allow their research to be co-opted to government agendas, that there's a, an impartiality or a neutrality to academia that they would be sacrificing in engaging with government. So how do you address those worries from the research side? As I said, one is the how can we engage government? Then we have the other side is also how can we also engage researchers to do more applied work with government? And I think that here we have a big challenge because we are talking about the incentives that also academics have in the universities and that kind of things. There are some changes going on. I see that there are more willing to do applied research inside of the academia. There are also, there have been a lot of discussions about how can we make relevant the research and academics that we are doing in the universities. And when we say relevant, it is how can this bring some knowledge and some insights to the real problems that our society and our governments are facing. And I see a new trend there. There are more scholars and researchers that they want to do apply knowledge. I think that also the fact that we have like different Nobel Prize that are in economics, for example, that are recognizing how valuable it is to do some applied research that is relevant for the problems that our societies are facing. So there is a, a trend there. Also in some universities, for example, here in the School of Government, we recognize the impact that our research has, not just in regarding how many journals did you publish, but also about how the impact of this research is having in policymakers, in the real world, in a specific policies that has a, that can be implemented. So I think that is another thing. So first, I think there is more willingness from the researchers to work more with governments. Second, I see that there are 
some institutions and some universities that are recognizing the importance of having impact and also communicating the, our knowledge to a broader audience. And the third ones, I think that also what I have seen is there are new journals that they are also publishing some of the research that deal with the problems in the, on the ground. The incentives are moving a little. And part of the identity of, I think, many academic scholars is around rigor. Do you feel that there are some ways that the worries about rigor are being mitigated? So the worry that, let's take an example, in conducting a study with the government in order to minimize the level of risk and the costs associated with the study, we take only a small sample because of some political or policy worries it might be difficult to get a sample that that will not be systematically biased, but that's the way that research needs to go sometimes in the government context. Whereas from the academic perspective, we say, well, that's maybe not such a rigorous piece of research. Do you feel that there are some ways that rigor, some structures that allow rigor to be protected or, or embedded a little bit more strongly when we engage with actors uh, in government as researchers? It is good to recognize that there are trade-offs when we work with governments, we need to, and there is, there are trade-offs and also there is the need to find a common ground that you usually don't have to do when you are doing your independent research because you can just define your question and then you can just run your experiments. But when we are working with government, I will say that this will be more research for public policy or applied research. We need to, to discuss what are the relevant questions for them, what are the main problems, what are the relevant questions for us as researchers? I find a common agreement on what will be interesting and help to get some information to the challenges that they face and also something that can bring knowledge. In that way, there is a trade-off. We give some things to gain others. And how can we deal with the temptation you know, of changing the path of the research or changing some of the potentials or framing in a different way some of the potential results, I think that in our experience, we have followed some specific steps. First, I think that we need to register, pre-register the experiments that we want to run. What are our hypotheses? What is what we are looking? What effect are we waiting to have? And I think that gives us credibility to our colleagues inside of the academia, but also it um, established a common agreement with the government too, because it is a statement that what we are doing, it is, it has to be rigorous, it has to follow some scientific steps. That is one of the things that we are doing. The second thing that we are doing is we share data when it's possible, protecting and following all the standards that we need to protect personal database, but we share the data that we have. One thing that also has been important for us is a part of the policy recommendations that we can have from these kind of experiments, we want also to publish in journals and to make this knowledge available for the academia, for a general audience. And that is important because they understand that there are, in that case, there are some steps and some protocols that we need to follow if we want to work together. In my experience, it's a matter of communication. It's a matter of understanding the incentives that they have and understanding our incentives, find a common place, a common agreement, I think that it's possible to have both, to be relevant in the real world and in policy, also get good research and bring some new knowledge. In developing new knowledge and this trade-off or finding common ground that you talk about, there's a, a tension that I've encountered and maybe one way to phrase it would be like this. In government, there's a lot of focus on the magnitude of an effect that you can measure. It's about whether you can make a meaningful difference, whereas a lot of the incentives within academia are focused on statistically significant differences. So those are two concepts, of course, that are related to each other, but the focus is, is quite different in those two things. A government might say, well, even if the effect is statistically significant, the magnitude is so small that it's not meaningful. Yes, you've demonstrated that it can have a change. And beyond uh, one chance in 20, we know that this change 
is real, that it's going to happen. The change that you would make is of such a small magnitude that it's not worth doing. I'm not worried about the risk that this might just be noise in the data. Whereas on the academic side, there's much, much more focus on whether what we're measuring is noise or signal. Um, and so that focus on statistical significance. My sense is that, especially when it comes to journal publications, the focus on statistical significance is very, very intense. And this is how we end up with, for example, the file drawer effect, where null result studies are not published. And this leaves a glaring hole in what's visible as the outputs of the research enterprise. Do you have some thoughts on that, on the tension between meaningful effects and statistically significant effects, on null results and, and how we communicate our work? Governments are looking to have like a, a huge effect on the things that they are doing. But also what we know is like a lot of the policies that they are implementing, we don't know what is the real effect that these policies are having. So when we put on the table that we can do these kind of studies and experiments, we will at the end know the real effect that this intervention or policies are having that is a good framing. I have seen that governments buy that idea. They like to know and they are willing to know about what are the real effects of the policies that they are having. I already said, I think that it's important to start small so they can see how do we implement the projects, how the method works. That is one challenge that is there, but also that we can deal uh, with that when we, when we work with government. The second challenge, I think that is, is bigger, that is about the significance and uh, the statistical significance of our studies. Maybe a couple of years ago, having a null result, it will be the most sad moment of a researcher. You know, when you are like after running an experiment, you see that your experiment is, doesn't have any, any result that is statistical, statistically significant. What I see now is that this is changing. What I see is that different journals are valuing, are considering that it's important also to uh, publish null results. What is behind this is that we are now recognizing that having null results doesn't mean that your experiment didn't work. It means what we were testing and that our hypothesis might not be the ones that are important for the final a factor that we want to change, but that we can learn from this process. So having null results can tell us a lot of things, can tell us what has been done and it didn't work, and how can we it give us some insights of other things that we can try because maybe the traditional hypothesis don't work. So it gives us information about that. It gives us also information about the process, how this experiment was done, why it didn't work, what are the reasons? No, it gives us a lot of knowledge that it might not be the causality, but it also gives us information about other things that we can that we can try. I think that the good thing of presenting and publishing new results is that we can build about some knowledge that is already there, about some findings that give us information about what works and what uh, doesn't work. So we've talked a lot about the relationship between between research and government. And I think that it's uh, it's valuable to talk about this idea of null results, and which means something very different in the, in the research context and the government context. In the research context, I think you've done a very nice job of articulating some of the, the challenges of how a null result is perceived and the way that, that, is, that that's evolving. On the government side, a null result means you tried something that didn't work and you didn't have an impact. Of course, there are difficult discussions to be had in a government context around that as well, where there's so much pressure to demonstrate that everything you've tried was a success. I'd like to shift a little bit now and pull apart this concept of government. So governments are not the same all around the world. And one of the, the stark differences that's been noted in bringing experimental approaches to government is the difference between governments in developed contexts versus governments in developing contexts. For yourself, as someone who's worked quite a bit with governments in developing contexts, I'd love to pick your brains on that topic. So what can we do to improve or increase the use of behavioral science interventions in the contexts of developing countries? First thing is that the challenges are different. We, in developing countries, we are 
also facing a lot of lack of or challenges related with structural uh, barriers that are basic, you know, the rule of law, the, if we are talking about transportation, the lack of infrastructure. We need to recognize that. And I think that it's important And in the work that I have done in developing countries. I think that it's important to tell government that we recognize that there are challenges that are there that are more institutional and structural uh, challenge. But even if we have that, we still can do something using behavioral science while we are also working in the institutional and structural uh, challenges. What I have seen is, first thing, we can get inspiration from studies around the world, mainly in developing countries, but we need to recognize, as we that study public, uh, behavioral science do, that context matters, that the context is important. So in a lot of the studies that we, that we did in, in developing countries, we always do the scoping of the context. We do a lot of qualitative research to understand really well what are the challenges in these regions. And then we develop also the interventions considering all these insights. So I think that there is a lot of things that we can do. I feel really excited about the idea of implementing more behavioral science in developing countries and also doing some comparative analysis and trying to see how can we implement these interventions in different contexts in these countries, even though it might be a lot of doubts about how can we apply behavioral science in these countries, I see a lot of opportunities. And I also think that it is a good way to start to change some behaviors. The example that I gave you at the beginning about the honest behavior, when we started to think about this experiment, a lot of people, the ones that were studying corruption for a long time in Mexico, they told us this is not a big issue. That was perfect for us because it's like, that is what we want is to change specific and little behaviors in the beginning. So we started with this specific project in honesty. The experts on corruption, they were saying, so that is not important. But at the end, we could change some behaviors and we, we also could change some norms inside of the government. One thing that happened as a result of our experiment is that some of the ministers order to don't receive any gift in the main entrance of the buildings in the government. And we couldn't quantify that. It wasn't good for our experiment in talking about numbers. But at the end, this is the kind of behaviors that we want to change. There are a lot of opportunities applying behavioral science in developing countries. There are ways to show also that it's possible. We have done this experiment in honest behavior. We also have done uh, some experiments about increasing women participation in rural areas with good results. We have done also some studies about increasing female high school students' interest on STEM careers. So what I see is there are a lot of efforts in developing countries in Latin America, Africa. We can add the behavioral lens and the behavioral perspective to make the projects and their policies that they are already implemented better. And we can do in different topics. We also like were doing some work about police motivation and violence, gender violence. It's not like substituting or it's not, it's not, I see behavioral science as a complementary intervention of the ones that the governments are already doing. And I think that that is the right frame. We understand that you are doing all these uh, policies already, but I think that if we use behavioral science, we can have a better approach of the problems and we can have a an impact on changing behaviors. So I will use that this is a complementary perspective uh, to make better and to improve the policies that governments are already implementing. When you're working in developing contexts, do you feel that the knowledge base of behavioral science is, uh, is serving you well? So... For instance, if we run uh, an experiment with a few hundred undergrads from a Psychology 101 course, the population that we will be studying is probably very different from the type of population we would then be working with in the context of behavioral insights with developing governments in developing countries. Do you have any experience with the kinds of insights that you find in literature being useful or not useful or needing to be modified in a certain way? 
to translate them from what is often an experimental context that's quite different from the application context that you're that you're focused on? I would say that we don't know. There are few studies in developing countries in the topic that I study that is honest behavior. We have few uh, results to really compare if the behavior is different. So what I see is that we need to do more. We need to do more experiments in the different levels, lab experiments, field experiments, applied research, more theoretical research, to have more insights about these developing countries that are and how people behave in different contexts, different cultures, uh, different type of interaction, social interactions. I think that we don't have yet enough studies to say and to compare and conclude if the behavior are different. I think that we need to do a lot more to see if people behave differently in different contexts and in different countries. We have a lot of, like, the studies that we have are mainly coming from the States, from Europe, uh, from UK, but we don't have a lot of studies about these behaviors in Latin America, in Africa, in Asia. So I see a huge opportunity there from both sides, from the academia to try to understand more and see if the behaviors are the same. But also I see a lot of opportunity to work with governments to see how can we do more of this applied research. I think that with information that we have now, we can't really conclude if they behave the same way or not. There is an opportunity there. In the context of this opportunity, and I agree with you that there is an opportunity there to really expand the knowledge base and to improve the way that governments function, especially in developing contexts. You mentioned earlier the structural constraints on you know, the resources that, uh, that are available for developing governments or governments in developing countries and the infrastructure that they already have. How do we create a scenario where the use of behavioral insights doesn't just create one more line of dependency between developing countries and developed countries. So the kind of dystopic or dystopian scenario that I have in mind is that we say, well, behavioral science is a really, really valuable tool in these contexts. And so a bunch of money from governments and foundations gets poured into sending experts from Europe and from North America to Africa, for instance, to conduct a bunch of studies, develop the knowledge base, help to design interventions to help governments improve their conditions. But what has ended up happening is we have developed the knowledge base and developed the capacity actually among those experts who are being sent to developing countries. How do we create opportunities for the developing countries themselves to build capacity along with us as money, resources, expertise get pumped into these contexts? I would say that three main actions we that should be implemented or we should consider to avoid what you are saying because that we don't want to create that dependency first i think that we should like international organizations international think tanks university that i am now we should partner with local researchers in order to also develop that capacities in the academia. That is one way that we can, and I think that we should be doing that in order to develop the knowledge and the capacities in the countries. And also because I think that it's important to recognize the knowledge that uh, our colleagues in these countries have, not just about the techniques, but also about the real context of the country. That will be one. The second one will be a good example is the unit that I created in Mexico that it was based in a research center. So this unit uh, bring together, brought together, also helps to form and to educate students in behavioral science and experimental methods. And now I think that there is a capacity there that they are also running their, their experiments and they are continuing uh, working with governments using these methodologies. So I think that that will be a second path that we can take. It's like, how can we help these governments to create their own think tanks or units, uh, universities or in research centers? And the third one that I would say that is a, a third option, all of them, they can happen together. The third option could be, how can we also develop knowledge inside of the government? And we have here different models. We have units like centralized units, usually in the presidential or in the cabinet office, that they have a group of researchers very well trained 
in experimental methods and behavioral science that help all the government to apply these uh, these techniques and this perspective. That could be one. Or also the other model that I have seen is that when you create these units or these expertise in the different agencies and in the different ministries, so it can be implemented in all the government. We don't want to have to create this dependency. And I think that we should be building capacities in the countries. It could be through partnership. It could be creating these specialized units in research centers, in university, or also creating these units inside of the government with the different models that uh, can be followed. That is super essential and it should be also part of our agenda to create these capacities in the countries because it's also, it's not just about the methods, it's also about how do we see the problems, how do we understand problems, and how do we design public policies to, in a different way, using behavioral science. So I think that is is something that we should be spreading around the different governments and also like to create more of these capacities in the new scholars and in students that they are really interested on applying this methodology. You mentioned a lot of different actors there. So there are the local governments, there are local researchers, there are research partners in other countries, there are international organizations who are often supporting this kind of work. This seems to be a very important difference from what we were talking about a few moments ago when we were talking about using behavioral science in the context of developed governments. The conversation there that we were having was really about aligning the incentives of two different groups, government, you know, government workers and, and policymakers on the one side, and local researchers usually on the other side. Now we're up to four. We've got the local researchers, the international researchers, the government, and these international organizations that are often funding work. Now we have a lot of different incentives that we need to align. How do we find the right champions in this kind of context where it's even more complicated to align these different incentives? Who are the right people to identify and to sort of bring on board to help to move these projects forward in the development context? You know, like the right person to do this, you know, the right institution. I think that is more about opportunities. I think that if the government are open to do this kind of, let me, so I think that is it's like two ways. One way is government is willing to do this and it can be with local or with researchers in the country. We should be happy that it's happening. It could be maybe the government willing to do that, but when an international entity, I think that it should be also okay. I will say more from the side of the international entity, I think that it will be smart to invite some locals to work with them. And also sometimes for the locals or for the people that are in the country, it is smart to invite some international uh, researchers because also it gives a little more of pressure to the government when you have international presence to continue this and also like to publish and to engage with this. I would say that we don't need to have all of them in a project. I think that it goes in two ways. One is the willing of the government to be open and to try this uh, research. And on the other side, the willing of researchers, international researchers or in-country researchers to do this kind of research. I was still thinking that we have like two main incentives. The researchers, I mean, the researchers, I will say, in the country or outside the country. And then on the other side, we have the government. I won't say that we have more stakeholders and more incentives to align. So it's really about finding opportunities. Do you see that there are like that we need to align all of them? I don't know that we need to align all of them, and certainly not from the beginning. Of course, if we think that we need to build this entire massive edifice before we can start doing anything, then we're unlikely to get very much off the ground at all. In the same way that individual projects need to start small and start with things that are low risk and can demonstrate a little bit of return on investment early on, we should think of the same type of approach when we think about building relationships, that maybe our ideal is that in the longer term, we have all of these players at the table and working together smoothly and harmoniously for the reasons that we discussed earlier, that allows us to create knowledge jointly. It allows us to develop capacity in an equitable manner. It allows local governments in developing contexts and local societies in developing contexts to have what is truly an appropriate amount of agency in determining how their own public policy problems are scoped and framed. And 
how the experiments are designed in order to address those problems, to develop solutions that ultimately are solutions that they have ownership of. We don't want you know, a bunch of Europeans and North Americans going and sort of <laughs> stepping off the colonial ships and saying, here's the perfect solution to your problem. We don't need to have the idea that all of this needs to be set from day one. As you mentioned, you know, you start with the opportunities that present themselves. You engage the individuals who are willing on the problems that seem to lend themselves well to this approach. And from there, we can build. My takeaway from what you've said just now is that we shouldn't think about starting too big. No. We should start small with the opportunities that are available to us and with and the, the champions and the leaders who are there ready. And mainly, I think that when we are talking about countries that they haven't tried, they haven't done a lot of experiments, they haven't applied behavioral science, you said we are building a relationship, we are creating trust. I think that in that case, both sides, government and researchers, what we want is to have the better results possible. And when I say the better results, it's like in the process of doing the research, we're also in the final result. And I think that starting small, having something that is low risk, that they also can get some insights about how do we do this kind of research and what they can learn in the process and how can they also capitalize the knowledge that we can create. For me, that is the key. And finding these champions, it opens doors. It opens a lot of doors uh, to do after having low risk projects to do projects that are more ambitious and projects that have maybe also like bigger and deeper questions. As we scale them, it seems like we're in agreement on this point that we need to start small with the opportunities that present themselves and the champions who step forward. And so perhaps the, the lesson that we can extract from this is that in the developing context, there are additional worries about ownership and agency and capacity that we need to have in mind. Those are not necessarily problems that we're going to solve from the beginning, but that as we scale, we need to keep in mind that those problems can start to arise. And so we need to have a clear idea in our mind of how that scaling path uh, in a development context might need to be different than the kind of scaling path that we see in the context of a more developed country where the worries about agency and ownership are maybe less acute. Other thing that I was just thinking that it would be it is valuable uh, in some cases when we are talking about developing countries is that we can add value not just with the final result, but also we can add value about helping them to create these databases that is going to be useful for their decision-making process. That was one of the main learnings that we had with this project, with the experiment that we run uh, with public servants in Mexico. It wasn't just about the final result. It was also about giving them little takeaways in the process. When they saw that they could have a database that makes their work easier and also that gives them some uh, key data for their work, they were also like really excited about that. And I think that that is the way that we also for researchers, it is good to think. It's not just about the final results. It's like, what can we give them? What takeaways can they have? in the process of the research. That was really, really gratifying for them. And also it took a lot of pressure out of us because we don't, we were not just looking at the end of the experiment. We were having some little takeaways and wins in the process. I think it's very important that those takeaways, those wins be really framed around the needs and priorities of the local actors that you're working with. One of the concerns that I have in this is that international organizations, in many ways, they're under a lot of pressure to demonstrate impact. And one of the offshoots of that is that they spend a lot of time and resources collecting an incredible amount of data. But the data that they're collecting is often oriented towards their own organizational and institutional needs. They collect the data that allows them to demonstrate impact to the people to whom they are accountable. But that's a very different question, a very different problem than the kinds of problems and questions that would drive the way that data collection is scoped by local actors, for instance. So we want to be very cynical about it. An international foundation that's looking to make a case to its donors that the money they're donating is worthwhile and that they should continue giving. It's a very different kind of storyline supported by a very different kind of data 
than local government who needs to make decisions about how it is that they are going to reorient a certain policy. As you mentioned in the Mexican context, for instance, a policy around transparency and gift giving. I think that that's a big change that yeah, international organizations, also some uh, researchers, academics, we need to do if we want to do applied research. It is not about us, it's about them. I usually, to my team, I tell that it is about them. It's like, what can we do in the process they can keep for them, that they can learn, that also they can build some capacities. And that is a change of mindset because usually we are thinking about, as you just said, uh, we are thinking about, okay, how can we give the information of the results that the donor is expecting or how can we answer our research question? And this is first, and we already said that, is about okay, understanding what are their needs, what are the main priorities, where do they think that we can add value? And once that we understand that, how can we connect this with our own interests, our research questions, and make this about them? How can we generate knowledge and give them uh, some win in the process? And I think that that is a totally change of mindset. Thank you very much for that. I think that's an excellent note to end on, remembering that when, as researchers, we're partnering with governments or other organizations looking to have societal impact, it's really about improving society at the end of the day. We use yeah. research to do it, but primarily it's not about the research. And making, in our case, I think that improving the well-being of the society, making better governments, also helping to have better policymakers, better public servants, yeah, to improve the, the well-being of the society. So and I think that this point is really, is really important. It's, like, how can we make these governments better? How can we increase the well-being of the society? And that means sometimes that we need to give up something if we really want to be relevant and to connect with the realities and the challenges that our societies and our governments are facing around the world. Totally agree. On behalf of TDL and all of our listeners, Margarita, thank you very much for sharing your insights with us today. Before we sign off, is there one last thing that you'd like to share, a summative insight or just something that we didn't get to touch on today? Maybe I just will say that some efforts as the people in government lab uh, has been done around different universities around the world. And there is more willing and more interest to try to do this kind of work together with government. I think that there is a great time to do applied research and to make a lot of our disciplines and a lot of our research relevant to the world. Great. Thank you very much. And for your listeners out there, thank you as well for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about Applied Behavioral Insights, you can find plenty of materials on our website, thedecisionlab.com. There, you'll also be able to find our newsletter, which features the latest and greatest developments in the field, including these podcasts, as well as great public content about biases, interventions, and our project work. Thanks very much.